Well, please take a copy of the scriptures and turn with me this time to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, We've made it to chapter 4. Uh, I haven't sat down to count, but we have something like six to nine more messages on 1 Peter. Um, And then uh, we are going to, Lord willing, head to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, for an extended series uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. So that's what you can expect. Uh, I was going to announce that at the congregational meeting, but realize not everybody's going to be there. So 1 Peter, then the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And let's remember that the goal of this letter is to teach us about our uh, new identity in the Lord Jesus Christ and how that both encourages and motivates how we live. In other words, it's to to see who we are by the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, and how that determines and sets the course of our lives in this world. And so Peter's explained to us what it will look like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to follow Christ's example in this world, and he has not shied away from talking to us about suffering for a moment. It's really a thread running through the entire book. And that reality, that hard reality, is at the forefront of our passage once again. Uh, In these verses, Peter calls us to the imitation of Christ, to Christ-likeness, to be like the Lord Jesus Christ in our thinking, in our desiring, our resolution, and in our whole outlook. And those, that's our outline for this morning. Call to Christ's likeness in our way of thinking, in our resolve, and in our outlook. So with that being said, let's go ahead and turn our attention to the reading of uh, God's word, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And let's give due attention to the reading of God's word. Since therefore... Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. It's important for us to appreciate up front that many people in the first century had a negative view of Christians. They saw them as a dreadful and dreary lot who lived lives devoid of pleasure. And that's because Christians abstained from many of the popular forms of entertainment in 
the Greco-Roman world. So for example, they didn't, they didn't attend the theater with its lewd performances. They didn't go to the, the chariot races or the gladiatorial games with all of its blood and gore and violence. Christians also had a very peculiar sexual ethic. Men and women, Christian men and women, abstained from sex outside of marriage, and within marriage they sought to be faithful to one another. Christians enjoyed wine and drink, but they didn't get drunk. Uh, They didn't steal or slander to, to get ahead, and perhaps most annoying of all, they continually refused to offer incense to Caesar and call Caesar Lord. And so in the first century, many Christians had earned the reputation of being haters of humanity and traitors of the Roman way of life. And it's within that context that Peter wrote these words. Believers, where believers are compelled by their faith to abstain from and even sometimes oppose widely held cultural practices and values. I suppose one other example we ought to throw in there is is how Christians were very vocal in speaking out against uh, the practice of leaving unwanted newborn infants exposed. That was the language that was used back then, exposed. That, That means left for dead thrown out on the garbage heap. Christians didn't go along with that. And so writing in this context, and I think think this is a word that we need to hear and listen to closely because if we are going to faithfully follow Jesus' example in our own day and age, then it inevitably means that there very well may be widely held cultural values and practices that we must abstain from and even at times directly oppose. New believers, if if you were converted recently or you remember after you were converted, this, this makes perfect sense to you. You understand the kind of thing Peter is talking about. After coming to Christ, you know, suddenly you face a whole new set of decisions about the people that you run with, the things that you do, the way you spend your time and, and your money. They, they might be able to recount to you that they immediately stopped going to those parties where the implicit or perhaps the spoken purpose was to go to get raging drunk and to sleep around. They stopped joining in on the gossip among their friends in order to get ahead or to show themselves to be superior than the next person. It very well mean, refraining from those things may very well mean that you have faced ridicule and slander for it. People maybe have maligned you. What has happened to you? You used to know how to have a good time. Why do you take this religion stuff so seriously? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, and that's the kind of thing Peter is talking about here. So I want us to take a close look At what he says, Peter calls us to be like Christ. And before we can consider this call to Christ-likeness, I think it's important for us to 
understand this call to Christ-likeness in the larger context of everything Peter has said to us about our new identity in Jesus Christ. Because of who we are now, our, our entire lives are wrapped up in Jesus Christ. He is our life. God has called us out of death and darkness into his marvelous light and to life itself in Jesus Christ. Jesus uh, bore our sins and transgressions on the cross in order to bring us near to God, Peter says. And he, he says, Jesus died for our sins on the cross so that we might die to sin and <clears throat> live to righteousness. And so now our lives are consumed by Christ, consumed by following Christ in all of our lives, seeking to walk in his footsteps, seeking to have his life written over our own. And in this passage, Peter speaks about three ways we are to be like him in our thinking, in our resolve, and in our perspective about ultimate things. So let's start with the first thing here. Christ-like in our thinking. And have a look again at verse 1, where Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. The same way of thinking as Christ who suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with it. Have the same mindset that he did when he endured suffering. Be prepared to accept unjust suffering as Christ did by arming yourself with the same way of thinking that Christ had. That's Peter's basic idea here, his basic line of thought. Now, notice a couple of things about this. First, Peter wants us ready for a a, a battle, for for war, we might say. I mean, he, he uses military language when he says, arm yourselves. Similar to Paul in Ephesians 6 when he tells Christians to put on the whole armor of God. There's a conflict coming. There's a struggle coming that may very well involve suffering for you. So I don't want you to be caught off guard. I want you to be ready for it. See, remember here that the the battle, though, is not... Uh, it's not described in, in Peter's letter here as you know, Christians going forth and conquering the world. Remember, Christians are exiles here, he says. We're sojourners. We're a minority people, marginalized in the, the eyes of the world. We're not cultural influencers. We're cultural outsiders. That's the language Peter uses to describe Christian identity of a minority group who do not fit in because they do not follow the patterns of the world. And Peter's helping us to understand that as a result, Christians may be made to suffer for it. And that, that is the battle that Peter wants us to be prepared for. So notice, secondly, what he wants us to be armed with. Right? The battle is not physical, though it takes place in the flesh. It's a spiritual battle. And so the, the weapons of our warfare are not of this world. Peter doesn't say sharpen your swords or get your guns out. He says arm yourselves with the same way of thinking 
Christ had when he committed his life to obedience, even if that meant he had to endure suffering. Have that mindset that it is better to suffer for doing God's will than it is to sin. I think we need to pause right here for a minute and just recognize how much Peter's teaching stands in contrast to what so often passes as Christian teaching today. I think the message that a lot of people get, while it may not be, you know, full-on, full-fledged wealth and wellness, uh, wealth and uh, wellness, prosperity gospel teaching, nevertheless, the, the message that a lot of people hear is that, look, God has a wonderful plan for your life. If you will just trust and obey him, your life is going to be great. It's going to be awesome. God will bless you, and bless there is typically understood in terms of peace and prosperity. And let's just be honest with ourselves, friends. We want it to be that way sometimes, don't we? We want it to work that way. God, if I do X, Y, and Z for you, then you owe me this. We want God to be like a soda machine. We can stick in the coins and push the button and get what we want. And we struggle with the message that to be a follower of Jesus actually means to stick out like a sore thumb in the world and sometimes be called to suffer for it. I mean, I, I know I struggle with that. Perhaps, perhaps we have come to think that an easy, comfortable, undemanding, smooth sailing life is our God-given right. See, while we, while we rightly reject, name it and claim it, prosperity, it's just garbage. Let's just call it what it is. Name it and claim it garbage. We too can slip into more subtle versions of the very same error. Where we believe, look, if we serve God, then he essentially owes me a happy life. You see, friends, if we believe that, maybe not consciously, but in some deep concealed layer in our convictions and we operate and live on the basis of that assumption, then when suffering comes on account of faith, we have no way to accommodate that in our thinking, do we? Our faith takes a serious hit. And we find ourselves saying, look, I, Lord, I've, I've, I've served you, I've trusted you. I don't understand why this is happening to me. I thought you were on my side. No, I think Peter here brings us back to reality. As Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. If you follow Jesus, you may suffer for it. And you need to therefore arm yourself with the right mindset. The same way of thinking that you see in your very own Savior who understood that obedience to God in the, this world does not exempt you from suffering. In fact, it may very well lead directly to it. Don't you love how honest the scriptures are? Have we counted the cost of following Jesus? And so Christ-like in our thinking, and related to it, secondly, Christ-like in our resolve... 
Well, think about this. As a man, what was Christ's desire? What was the desire of his human will? What was his resolve throughout his life and ministry? So the Old Testament tells us in Psalm chapter 40, verses 7 and 8. We sang it last week. Behold, I've come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, I delight to do your will. O God, your law is within my heart. That's Christ's voice that we ought to hear there. Words that tell us about his heart, his will, his desire, his devotion. He came into the world to do his father's will. And Jesus says this in his earthly ministry, John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says, Therefore I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He came to conform his human will to the divine will. Jesus took on flesh to do the will of his father. And his, what was his will? Actually, the very next verse in the Gospel of John tells us that it was the father's will for anyone who looks upon the son and believes in him would be saved and have eternal life. So the father's will is for people to be saved through his son. But in order for that to happen, to be a reality, Jesus Christ, the man, had to submit his will to the will of his heavenly father and live a life of perfect obedience and devotion to God. As one born under the law, he had to live his entire life for the will of God perfectly in order to secure our everlasting salvation. And as a man, Jesus did this. He lived for the will of his Father, for our eternal salvation. And now, and now, as we follow Jesus' example, you see what Peter's doing? He's calling us to live for the will of God, not in order to save ourselves. Jesus has already done that by his perfect life of obedience and his sacrifice on the cross. But as those who are saved to be done with sin and to live for the will of God. We're being called to follow Jesus in this way, by being through with sin and living to conform our lives to the good and wise will of God. Do you see that in verses 1 through 3? Look look at them again and, and follow Peter's logic He wants us to arm ourselves with a Christ-like mindset, being prepared to suffer for doing good. And then he gives us the reason, the motivation for doing it. For, okay? Arm yourselves with this way of thinking. For, so here's the reason. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Okay, what does Peter mean? He does not mean that we are able to live sinless, perfect lives as Christians in this world. It's not what he's talking about. Some have actually gone to this passage to try to make that argument. But that can't be what Peter means. Ceasing from sin does not mean being without sin. Remember what 
what John says, the Apostle John in 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth of God is not in us. The truth is not in us. Anybody saying that they could live a sinless life, John's saying they're self-deceived and they might just be trying to deceive you. So watch out for it. Okay, so what is Peter really saying then? Here's what I think he's getting at. He is highlighting the choice before us as Christians. Right? Faced with suffering for commitment to Christ, that is the kind of suffering that Peter is talking about here. Not just general suffering of any kind, but suffering as a result of opposition to the gospel. Faced with that kind of suffering, Christians have to decide, is Christ worth it? Is Christ worth it? Is God's will really supreme? I can, I can choose Jesus. I can choose life on his terms. A life that says I am done with sin and turns its back on human passions. Or I can choose the world and fit right in. And if I choose the world and its sinful passions, well, life will probably go pretty smoothly for you without many, too many bumps. But if I choose obedience to the will of God, it may very well be a bumpy ride. That's what Peter is saying. Whoever suffers has ceased from sin. In this life, there is a connection between saying, I'm done with sin and suffering. To devote yourself to doing the will of God is to say, I am prepared to suffer because following Jesus is better than wasting my life on things that will not last and things that ultimately are vanity, vapor. It's to say, I've turned from that life. I'm done with it. I'm through with it. And to say over and over and over again to ourselves and to the world, I would rather have Jesus and suffering and, than sin and friendship with the world. I am resolved to live the rest of my time here no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Friends, this isn't just pious talk. It, 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 has, it has real life consequences. And as I said at the beginning, some of you, some of you know this firsthand. You've, you have faced the painful and difficult choice between Jesus Christ on the one hand and friendships or relationships with others on the other hand. Perhaps more, more as, you've, as, you've, as you've pursued Christ-likeness, you've found yourself looking less and less like your circle of friends and not quite fitting in anymore. Or perhaps as you pursue following Jesus in your life, you, you find friends or even family members beginning to distance themselves from you, not wanting to be around you. And you face the question, okay, who do I love most? Is it... Is it Jesus or is it my so-called friends? If it's my friends, then I have to embrace the way of, their way of life because that is the cost of friendship with the world. But if it's Jesus, I, I need to face the possibility that there may very well be real social costs. Some of you have faced this in the workplace some of you face this kind of thing in a romantic relationship. 
perhaps even within a marriage. Some of you in school, right? Will I, will I join in? Will I just blend in? Will I go with the flow? Or will I identify with Jesus in his sufferings for the sake of obedience to the will of God? Those are the choices, dear friends. There's no, there's no fence to sit on here. Avoid suffering and embrace the world or endure suffering and renounce sin. Those are the options Peter sets before us here. And so there really, there really is no way around it as we consider this passage. This passage is telling us it is time, if we haven't already, to get real about living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for, what, uh, for doing what the Gentiles do. They're Gentiles, he's referring to, to unbelievers. And then he gives this list of sins that, that marked <clears throat> the times and frankly still marks our own. He's not saying everybody in society was given over to these things. He's speaking in generalities, things that marked the culture and moral life of that day. And he mentions sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You see, the first, first five have to do with this unrestrained pursuit of sex and food and drink. And the, the last one has to do with immoral acts, many of them of a sexual nature, directly connected with pagan rituals in temples throughout the Greco-Roman world. He's describing, though, in a nutshell... A life that is devoted to pleasure. A a life that is devoted to serving self. And so you see what he's saying. He's saying your your life before Christ, I think with a fair bit of sarcasm, he says, your life before Christ was more than enough time for such a life. And the past is where that kind of living belongs. It's history. It's not your present and it certainly isn't your future anymore because that is not who you are anymore in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has called you to new life in Christ. He has called you and established you in a new way of life in Jesus Christ. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has made you dead to sin and alive to righteousness. And Peter is saying, therefore, will you not think of yourselves in this way and live in that light? There's a challenge here, though, isn't there? There's a challenge because sometimes in our Christian lives, what we do is we bargain with ourselves. You know, when we're facing a temptation or a particular sin in our lives, we know, we know, that's, that's the old man. <laughs> that's not part of the life God calls me to in Jesus Christ, but what do we tell ourselves? We tell, I'll, I'll turn a new leaf tomorrow. Just one more time. Just one more time. This is the last time. I think of Augustine who said, uh, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Not yet. But Peter's teaching confronts that head on and says, no, look, you have had enough time for that. Before God rescued you from futility, from futile ways of living, and redeemed you, now is the time to think and live like Jesus. Now, of course, that kind of dogged commitment to Christ-likeness is going to 
Well, it's going to disturb some people. That's what Peter is talking about in verse 4. Have a look. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Friends, the fact is consistent Christians are an enigma to the world. We are a weird bunch. Now, sometimes we can be weird for the wrong reasons. But when we're weird for the right reasons, when we're we're weird in the eyes of the world, insofar as we're pursuing Christ's likeness, it's going to surprise people, Peter says. And sometimes that surprise produces negative effects in our lives. They, They may feel judged by you. It should never be because we are, in fact, being judgmental. But it should be because you don't think or say the do the same things. They, they, they feel indicted by your abstaining from the ways of the world. And Peter's saying sometimes that might result in hostility. The Christians Peter wrote to were certainly already beginning to endure that in the forms of social marginalization and verbal slander and, and being maligned, as Peter describes here. So we can put ourselves in their shoes for just a minute and imagine Peter's audience, you know, listening to Peter's first epistle being read to them. And I think if I were them, I maybe would have thought, wow, Peter, you know, I was looking for a positive and encouraging word. And um, this isn't it. (laughs) This isn't it. Well, friends, we need to understand Peter. Peter's not being pessimistic. He's not being a downer. He... He loves these people dearly. And so he's, he loves them enough to be real with them. To not sugarcoat. To, to, to talk to them about the real Christian life in this world. And he's saying, people are going to be surprised when you don't join in and go their way. And it may very well mean that you may be maligned. You may be slandered. You may be marginalized. If you want to follow Jesus, again... Have you counted the cost? Same way of thinking, the same resolve, and then finally the same outlook. Now what do I mean by that? I mean our perspective about ultimate things. The way we live our lives, Peter wants us to live our lives in such a way that we see our present in light of the end. In light of eternity, that that there is a day of reckoning. And we certainly see this kind of life exemplified in the life of our Lord Jesus. This was his perspective. It's how he lived on earth during the time of his suffering. He understood everyone is accountable. And that perspective also motivated Jesus to live by faith And endure ridicule and rejection as he sought to earnestly proclaim the gospel. With final judgment in view, Jesus endured rejection and kept on holding out good news so that people might turn to him and be saved. And that's the same perspective that Peter wants us to have in our Christian lives. You see that at the end of verse 4? Because you don't go along with them in their shameful way of life, they malign you. But, verse 5, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
That means very practically we don't have to live our lives trying to vindicate ourselves. Instead, we can follow Christ in urgently proclaiming the gospel so that others may have everlasting life in Christ by the Spirit. I think that's what Peter is getting at in verse 6. This is a verse we scratch our heads at when we first read it. Follow the line of thinking. Verse 5, everyone will give an account to Christ who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. Right? They heard the gospel while they were alive. They've died like everybody else, judged in the flesh, the way people are, that they might live in the spirit the way God does. So what is Peter saying? He's saying universal judgment is coming, so the gospel is preached to people while they are alive, so that even though they they die in the flesh like everyone else, yet they may live in the spirit. I think that's what Peter is saying there in verse 6. And when we think about that, we have to recognize, okay, here is a place where the gospel comes into conflict with popular thinking today. We have all, we've all heard this. The claim that truth is socially and subjectively developed. And so any claim to a universal truth is rejected outright. And when that's applied to religious belief, it, it means that religious convictions are only true for those who believe it. But Peter says, with clarity and conviction, that the good news of God's forgiveness and judgment in Christ is, is true not only for believing Christians, but for the entire world. Everyone must give account. And this is why the gospel must be proclaimed so that people may be saved. You see, this universal claim, we might think that we live in unique times, but there really is nothing new under the sun. This universal claim was just as offensive in the Greco-Roman world as it is in our own. They had their own form of religious pluralism. And in that very context, Peter says, no one escapes giving an account to God, where we will either be acquitted and vindicated or accused and condemned based on our relation to Jesus Christ. In Peter's terms, whether we have come by faith to the living stone or have stumbled in unbelief over the rock of offense. And so verse 6, it, look, it's not about post-mortem preaching to the dead. Okay? That's, that's not what Peter is talking about here. Peter's point is that death does not exempt a person from God's judgment. Death doesn't get us off the hook. And Peter needed to say that because a lot of people in his day and a lot of people in our own day believe there's no real accountability after death. Death is the end. Right? The philosophy, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, 
was, is a philosophy that was alive and well then, just as it is now. And so Peter, you know, based on that assumption, he's recognizing, look, it's, it's understandable why someone might question what, what good the gospel is when it looks as though all it does is restrict behavior in this life and then that person dies, just like everybody else. What's the point? Peter's point is, well, there's a post-mortem reckoning. A day when we will each personally stand before Jesus Christ and give an account of ourselves. And we will be judged not by our own subjectively determined standards, but by God himself and his standards of righteousness. And Peter wants us to understand, therefore, that the good news about Jesus, the message of forgiveness and judgment that has been preached to those who are now dead, has abiding importance. Death does not invalidate the promise of free forgiveness in Jesus Christ, nor does it invalidate the reality of coming judgment. And so I have two things I want to say here, and then we need to come to the Lord's Supper. A word of warning and a word of encouragement. Okay, then we're done. There's a warning here, I think, to anyone who rejects the gospel on the basis of the assumption that this life is all there is and that death is the end. What does Hebrews say? It is appointed unto man once to die, then comes the judgment. And God will judge rightly. But you see, here's the good news of the gospel, that the very one who is appointed to judge the living and the dead is himself the savior of any who come to him in humility and faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. And that leads me right to the word of encouragement. It's a reminder to all of us, dear friends, that the power of the gospel is not compromised by death. The power of the gospel is not compromised by physical death. And so the decision to trust and follow Jesus all of your days with all of your heart and all of your resolve is not a waste. It is something that you will never, ever, ever regret in eternity. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and you will see seated there the very one who bled and died for you. And the one who has been appointed to judge the world is seated there as your savior to welcome you, welcome you into his kingdom of life and joy and peace and righteousness where sin and injustice and sickness and death will be no more. It's never a waste, never a waste to live your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're called here to Christ-likeness, Christ-likeness in our mind, in our resolve, in our perspective. And as we follow in the footsteps of our Savior, therefore we will be ready to suffer for our faith if we must. Peter is also assuring us, dear friends, Jesus Christ is infinitely worth it. So let's have this mind, let's have this resolve to be done with sin and to live for the will of God 
And part of his will for us, dear brothers and sisters, is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ so that others may come to share in the life of God. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for all that you have done for us and our Savior Jesus Christ for calling us out of darkness into light, for bearing our sins and carrying them away and canceling the debt that stood against us to set us free. And we thank you that because he died to sin in union with him, we have died to sin and have been raised with him to walk in newness of life. And we pray that these gospel realities would have bearing on our thinking and bearing on how we live as we seek to walk in the footsteps of our Savior. We thank you now that we have the privilege of coming to the Lord's table and being reminded of your abounding grace to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.